I'm always terrified when I have this headset on that they're going to pipe my singing through the... <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. They really don't. Well, good morning. My name is Zach Carden. I just want to introduce myself really quickly because it's been a while and a lot of you are new. Uh, I am the director of family ministries here. I'm also the coordinator of ministries here. And what that means is this. Dr. Youssef has a 10-year vision. And that vision is to see the, tr- the whole truth uh, passed on to the next generation. And so part of my job is I get to help all of our ministry departments align under that goal. And, and that's a blessing to me because it's a, it's a passion of my heart. In fact, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis uh, chapter 21, verses 22 through 34. Genesis 21, 22 through 34. That's on page 29 of the Pew Bible. Back in 1989, my grandmother, being the oldest living and longest member of her church, was given the honor of ringing the bell, the old church bell at the Centennial. And I was not a believer then. In fact, I was only excited about it because I got a half day off from school. So in my rebellious heart, I'm I'm standing there watching what was happening, but I couldn't help but really sense the deep significance of the moment, you know. The bell being rung was a memorial to the faith, not only of my grandmother, but of the people who founded and built that church and grew that church and were faithful stewards of all God's uh, word and his, and his gifts. Of all the people that labored and who passed on the faith to another generation in that church. And that's Memorial Day weekend, and we honor the legacy of those who fought and died to preserve our country. But this morning, as we consider Genesis 21, 22 through 34, we consider those who passed on a legacy of faith. So let's take a look at that passage. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I have shown you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You you did not tell me, and I only heard about it today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And your word guides us. Your word shapes us. Your word rebukes us. Your word corrects us. Your word encourages us. Father, bless now the preaching of your word. May it root in our hearts and may having heard it, we be changed by it. May having seen it, we see something of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for us. 
And may his cross be our banner. And may we pass that to the next generation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the things I absolutely love about this passage is how unexpected but relatable Abraham's actions are here. It it isn't something you would expect him to do. You would expect him to to take a lamb and sacrifice it, to put it on on the altar and offer up praise to God. And he does offer up praise to God. But instead of of sacrificing a lamb, he plants a tree, and that's so very relatable. I mean, my in-laws have planted a tree for every single one of my children that were born. Um, You probably have done something similar, just to commemorate a special event or a special moment. We we used to to take our Christmas tree, we'd we'd buy the, the bald Christmas tree, and we'd plant it in our yard. And I remember one of those trees grew as tall as our house. And the reason we do it is because trees stand as a testimony, as a memorial. Trees will live longer than we do. They'll outlive us. In California, there's a bristlecone pine known as the Methuselah tree. It's been determined to be 4,852 years old. And to put that in perspective, that tree was alive 650 years before the birth of Abraham. Trees live on as testimonies, as markers and memorials. But before you think I'm stumping, pardon the pun, (laughs) for Arbor Day, let's get back to the text. We know why we plant trees, but why does Abraham plant a tree? Well, Abraham more than likely planted the tamarisk tree as a testimony, as a legacy to the nation that would come after him to encourage them to those who would occupy the land. It's meant to encourage future generations as a legacy of God's promise, a legacy of God's character, and finally, a legacy of Abraham's faith. First, it's a legacy of God's promise which is meant to encourage future generations. What is God's promise to Abraham? It's that God would make Abraham's children number greater than the stars in the, on the sky and the sands of the seashore. He also promised that he would give them the land of Canaan. And he has already fulfilled part of that promise just a little earlier. In Genesis 21, we see the birth of Isaac. In fact, Abimelech probably sees that as a sign here at this point. This is probably why he comes to him. Because God has delivered on the first part of his promise. And maybe, just maybe, Abimelech understands a little bit more about the rest of that promise. So he's asking him to deal fairly with him. And here, through the Lord's providence, he provides a small piece of real estate that Abraham can call his in the promised land. So you have the seed of what would be the nation in Isaac, and then you have the seed of what would be the land here at the well in Beersheba. Because in the Bible, the promised land is marked out as being between Dan and Beersheba. And here Abraham is marking the southernmost boundary of the nation. And he secures this well. There will be many times when the generations to come would have reason to doubt the promises of God, just like it sometimes we doubt the promises of God. When the generation of the Exodus bemoaned their situation in the desert and begged to return to Egypt in the land of slavery because of their fear, 
in, in, in lack of trust that God would sustain them. Abraham's faith stood as a marker and a testimony to who God is and his promises. When the generation in the time of Judges begged for a king with a heart like the kings of the other nations instead of waiting for the man who would have a, a heart after God, this stood as a testimony. When the generation in the time of the kings ran after false gods like Baals and, and built Ashtoreth poles, instead of trusting the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they showed they doubted the promises of God, and Abraham's faith stood as a marker and a testimony. When the generation at the time of Jesus refused to see the testimony of the sacrificial system that points out the reality that their righteousness could never save them and that they, need, they needed Christ instead of trusting in their, their, their filthy rags of their own righteousness, Abraham's faith stood as a testimony. The tree was a legacy that God is a God who keeps his promises. If we hope to pass on our faith to the next generation, if we hope to leave a legacy for them, we need to show how God has fulfilled his promises in us. They need to hear fewer stories about how we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps and toughed through something. And they need to hear how God delivered us. They need to hear about the God who took a heart that was wandering far from him and brought it to himself. They need to know that God has done and is doing his work in us. As parents, as grandparents, as disciplers who want to disciple others, we have to tell stories of God's greatness, the fact that he's the hero of every story, not us. It wasn't our ingenuity that brought us here. It wasn't our giftedness. It wasn't our specialness that brought us here. And you see that here. Abraham doesn't pat himself on the back here. He clearly doesn't tell Isaac the story of, hey, this is how I, I, I got this well. This is what I did. Verse 33 paints a clear picture of who Abraham believed deserved the credit for that victory. The victory was God's. He calls upon the name of God when he plants that tree. We need to give the next generation no reason to believe it was our specialness that caused the Lord to bring us to himself. Rather, they need to see that it was the Lord bringing us to himself that causes us to be special to him. Moses said something similar to the people of Israel before they took the land. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 says this, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were the more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. One of the most insidious things that the enemy uses to keep people from redemption in the gospel is the idea that Christianity is just the story about good people made nicer. That point was driven home to me as a, as a young believer as, as I desperately wanted a friend of mine to know Christ the way I'd come to know Christ out of the depth of my own sin and depravity. And we'd have long discussions on rides home from school, rides to school, 
And at one point, he turned to me and he said, Zach, you and I are different. You're a good person. Nothing offended me more deeply because I'm not. And that's, that kept him from the realization that anyone, anyone can come to Christ. Anyone can bow the knee before Christ. Anyone can be used in the kingdom of God. And if you don't believe me, ask the guy that persecuted and tried to kill and snuff out Christianity and was taken by God, brought to his knees, and became an apostle. But I gather you do believe it because for many of you, that's your story. And you know the fact that the gospel is not a, is not a story of, of, of good people made nicer, but it's the story of dead hearts made alive, slaves to sin set free. And that's God's promise from Genesis to Revelation, or as Dr. Yusuf would say, from Genesis to Maps. It's the story of God fulfilling his promise and using broken and sinful and rebellious people like us that he's brought to their knees. So what stories are we telling? What gospel are we sharing? Are they a legacy of our own ingenuity? Our own strength of of how God took a good person and made him or her nicer? Or is it a legacy of a God who is strong enough to keep his promise, a God who radically transformed us. And miracle of miracles has used us in our imperfection to advance his kingdom. One legacy is one that discourages by comparison. The other, that encourages us because God can take any heart, any dark heart, any person and transform them into an ambassador of his kingdom. Not only is what Abraham does here a legacy of God's promise, which encourages future generations, it's a legacy of God's character, which means to encourage, which encourages future generations. Look at verses 22 through 24 again. At that time, Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you are living as an alien some, the same kindness I've shown you. And Abraham said, I swear it. Now, don't, don't miss this. When Abimelech comes to make a deal with Abraham, he doesn't come with his vizier. He doesn't come with his court attendants. He doesn't come with a diplomatic entourage. He doesn't even come with a couple of, of, of guards from the palace. He comes with the commander of his forces. Now, just to, just to put that in perspective, it would be like seeing the president and his, and his joint chiefs of staff show up at your neighbor's house to sit down with him and talk. If you saw that happening, your first reaction would be, I, I gather that my neighbor is a threat to national security, right? <laughs> and here I'm, am I didn't really realize that living right across the street from him. That's kind of scary. If you saw that, you would realize this guy must have enough power 
to pose a threat. And that's exactly what you should see here. Abimelech didn't summon Abraham to his palace. Abimelech came to Abraham and he brought the big guns with him when he did. Because he knew the character of God. Not necessarily Abraham. Abraham, he knew God was with him. It wasn't about Abraham. It was about Abraham's God. Because he had come face to face with Abraham's God. Previously before this, Abraham lied that Sarah was his sister. And so Abimelech took Sarah into his own harem. And then God came to him in a dream and said, I'm about to annihilate you. Let me tell you, I'm giving you, look, I'm giving you the count of ten. This is my words, not scripture. I'm giving you the count of ten to return Sarah to Abraham. And he realized just how powerful Abraham's God was. Not only that, he's probably heard about how Abraham went and took some of his servants and went to rescue his nephew Lot. And he's also seen that God can bring Isaac to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. So Abimelech understands the character of God. And so he's frightened for his future generations in dealing with Abraham and Abraham's descendants because he knows the power and the might of God. A God that's wholly unlike his God. A God of mercy and great power. But it's not just Abimelech who recognizes that here. It's Abraham. Skip back down to verse 33. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Abimelech isn't the only one who recognized the character of God. Abraham does as well. He doesn't just testify to that uh, in the fact that that they're they're taking this oath. He he testifies it, he testifies to it in, in the fact that he calls upon him as the Lord, the eternal God. He uses his covenant name, Yahweh. And then he qualifies that by saying he's the eternal God. And that God in his nature is the one who will keep promises. Long after the treaty with Abimelech has been forgotten, God will continue to keep his promise to Abraham. See, a promise is only as good as the character of the promise maker. And a promise only lasts as long as the one who made the promise. And here, Abraham underscores the fact that God made the promise. And God is the eternal God. And he will see that promise through because he is everlasting. So God's character is just as important as the promise he makes. And the temptation of future generations of Israelites wasn't necessarily to believe that God could do what he said he would do. It's our temptation. We know God can, but we doubt God will. In the darkest moments of our heart, in, 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 our, in our doubt and disbelief, we doubt God will be as good as he says he is, as good as we sang about this morning. And theirs was a similar issue. They could see how God had kept his promise. They could see that, that, that God had created a great nation. But it was their lack of understanding who God truly was that caused them to doubt 
him and his character. In fact, generations of Israelites during the time of the kings, before, the, um, before they, the, they were taken away in captivity, the Israelites had doubted that God was less than holy. And so they mixed the religion of following Yahweh with following Baal, following Ashtoreth. And so they mixed Canaanite religions in and they watered down the faith. On the other end of the spectrum, when Jesus arrives, what he finds is another kind of mischaracterization. God is less than merciful and gracious in that setting in which Jesus showed up. And you can see it in the parables that he tells. When he, he highlights the fact that God is not a harsh manager, an unjust judge, a person unwilling to answer the door for someone needing help, a father not, who's wanting to give snakes rather than eggs. He had to dispel the mischaracterization. It's not a better thing to pass on a faith that says God is less than merciful and gracious than it is to pass on a faith that says he's less than holy. We must be careful as believers passing on the faith to the, to the next generation of believers that we pass on the truth of who Jesus truly is in Scripture. No more, no less. There's no erring on the side of here. There is only presenting God as he is, Christ as he is. But the more we examine the generation, the more we begin to see what they have learned and what they've received is not exactly what we think. Many of you are probably familiar with the, word, the words moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a, it's a study that was done a number of years ago. And Christian teens were taken and were, were, were given a, a, a litany of tests and interviews. And they found out what, what they actually believed was radically different than what the faith in which they'd grown up. And there was a little truth mixed in with some untruth here. And here are the five tenets. This religion has these tenets. A God who exists, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in anyone's life. Uh, he's just needed there to resolve problems. And finally, good people, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, when this study came out in 2005, Dr. Al Mohler wrote an article about it. And he observed, and I can't say it any better than him, so I'm going to read you what he said. As the researchers explained, for most teens, nobody has to do anything in life, including anything to do with religion. Whatever is just fine, if that's what a person wants. The casual whatever that marks so much of the American moral and theological landscapes, adolescent and otherwise, is a substitute for serious and responsible thinking. More importantly, it's a verbal cover for the embrace of relativism. Accordingly, most religious teenagers' opinions and views, one can hardly call them worldviews, are vague, limited, and often quite at variance with the actual teachings of their own religion. The kind of responses found among many teenagers indicates a vast emptiness at the heart of their understanding. When a te teenager says, I believe there is a God and stuff, 
this hardly represents a profound theological commitment. Amazingly, teenagers are not inarticulate in general. As the researchers found, many teenagers knew abundantly details about the lives of favorite musicians and television stars or about what it takes to get into a good college. But most were not clear on who Moses and Jesus were. The obvious conclusion, this suggests that a strong, visible, salient, or intentional faith is not operating in the foreground of most teenagers' lives. One other aspect, and this is crucial, one other aspect of this study deserves attention at this point. The researchers who conducted thousands of hours of interviews with a carefully identified spectrum of teenagers discovered that for many of these teens, the interview itself was the first time they had ever discussed a theological question with an adult. What does that say about our churches? What does it say about this generation of parents? Now, don't get me wrong. There are many children who grow up in a Christian household, and they learn who Christ is, and they rebel. That's a human heart. So I'm not pointing any fingers here. But the conclusion of, of, of many of the cases studied here was that no one ever bothered to have a conversation with them about who Jesus is. Not in church, not even their parents. And if we pass, if, if we were to pass that faith on to the next generation, we have to be clear on who God is what his character is, and we need to speak about him as often as we do our favorite sports team. We need to get into conversations about Jesus with our kids and others that are so deep that we're in over our heads when we have them. We need to feel like we're barely keeping our head above water. Dads, we should, we should have as much conviction about the things of, of, of God as we do what sort of offense to run in football. Moms and dads, are geared differently. Moms are ex exceptional at speaking to the heart, and dads are exceptional at presenting truth and facts, and that is an incredible team. God placed you together for the purpose of placing an indelible mark on the lives and faith of your children. And here's the beautiful thing. It's, it's the not knowing what to say that should press us deeper and deeper into community, in Christian community with others, who are just ahead of us or far ahead of us, who can speak into our lives and tell us what they did or what they did not do well. That's precisely where church comes in, creating opportunities through small groups, class settings. You, you met Jeff as he prayed in the young families class. You know TJ, small groups. Perfect opportunities for that life-on-life -life discussion that helps us as we try to unravel how do we talk to our children? How do we talk to one we're discipling when they ask hard questions? We need churches and Christians and families who will te teach deep theological truths God as, as, about God as, as well as engage and pursue the heart. We need both. And as parents and grandparents and disciples in the kingdom, it requires us to truly analyze our own faith and what we believe be cognizant of it ourselves and what we're consuming and what we're believing and what we're repeating. It requires us to repent of the areas where our actions are incongruent with our understanding of what Scripture says. Because the next generation often picks up on the actions that we do above what we stated. Case in point, guess who repeats exactly what Abraham did when he passed off Sarah as his wife? Isaac. Actions speak louder than words. 
So we have to speak words of repentance over actions that are incongruent with who God is. The next generation needs to see our character being transformed by God's character. They need to see how God has brought us to a place of repentance and faith. It encourages them that that when they fail, and like us they will, their shame doesn't need to keep them away from the Father who is waiting for their return from the far country. They need to see strong, visible, salient, intentional operating of faith in the foreground of our lives as we make decisions, as we talk to one another. What sort of legacy are we leaving the next generation in regard to God's character? And finally, what what Abraham is showing when he plants this tree is it's a legacy of Abraham's faith which is meant to encourage future generations. Though God initiates the promise and his character sustains the promise, a response of faith is required. Abraham's offering here is a response of faith. Look at verses 27 to 31 again. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. If Abraham didn't believe the promises of God were worth holding on to, he never would have given Abimelech a bunch of cattle and seven ewe lambs for a muddy well. And the thing is that that wasn't a muddy well to Abraham. That was a little piece of the promise that God had given him. It was a little piece of the promised land, which is itself a type of heaven to come. He understood with eyes of faith. The covenant with Abraham is a picture of the eternal covenant that we have with God, the covenant of redemption that would come through Christ. Paul writes in, in Galatians 3.16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And in Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He planted that tree in faith for you. To encourage our faith. Abraham knows that this one well is God's foothold in the land of promise. A promise that will unfold to reveal a bigger picture to bless the nations. Do you remember before the days of Apple Maps and Google Maps, before MapQuest 2 where you printed out the directions, when you had that map that you had to unfold? And then when you unfolded it, it gave you a bigger and clearer picture of where, where you were, but you, then you couldn't fold it back up again? <laughs> and you ended up like balling it up and sticking it in the glove compartment? That's God's promise to Abraham. Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day, and he did. Abraham understood the significance of what was happening. He saw the bigger picture that led to the cross. He unfolded that map. And not only could he not fold it back up again, he didn't want to. Because he knew the promise was bigger than just the nation that God had given him. He knew that one would come who would bless the world. And that's Christ. He looked forward by faith to the cross 
And we who are his children by faith look forward to the cross. That little muddy well in Beersheba was worth hundreds and thousands of you lambs to Abraham. What is our faith worth to us? What is the cross worth to us? But then there's one more thing. It's the planting of the tamarisk, tamarisk tree, and that's the interesting thing to me here. Many sources attest that a tamarisk tree is a slow-growing tree. I don't know. I, I don't know much about trees. <laughs> but I do know this. Abraham knew that tree would outlive him. He knew that it would grow tall and provide shade for the next generation. And he's, he's planting a flag in the ground. He's planting, planting a tree in the ground to testify that even though, even though Abimelech tells him he's an alien and a stranger in the land of Philistines, that this was going to be his land. He was no longer going to be a foreigner. It is a great act of faith to plant something for a future generation that may never be fully enjoyed by you or ever join, enjoyed at all. And that's what we do when we invest in prayers that will, will long outlive us, invest in a generation that we may never see grow into a future generation that will serve God. It's worth Now, let me ask you, is it worth everything we have to make sure the testimony of who Christ is and what he's done in us is carried on until the day Christ comes for his bride. Yes and amen. It's worth every bit. I look back on that moment in 1989 when my grandmother rang that bell. And she saw me come to faith. She knew I was going to go into the ministry. She thought I was going to be a Baptist. And, and I broke her heart when I was going to be a Presbyterian. It's okay. She forgave me before she died. She never saw this. She never saw the result of a faith that would cause me to stand up and declare Christ from a pulpit. To spend every day of my life making sure that everything aligns for the one mission that the faith that we hold dear, the Christ that we love, is exalted not just in one generation, but in generations to come. And you will not get to see the fullness of who you're pouring into until the day Christ comes and we see all as he's unfolded it. But I can tell you now, it is worth every bit of everything that we have to pour into the next generation. Not plant a tree in the ground, but plant the cross firmly in the ground and point to it and declare there is no other way of salvation to a holy God who is merciful and gracious to you. And through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we stand before you as weak vessels, as vessels of clay, but you have said that your spirit in us will cause us to be cast down but not broken. Father, help us to tell the old, old story, but not a story of our goodness and our wonderfulness and our specialness, but a story of how we were sinners saved by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to encourage the next generation with stories of your faithfulness to us. Help us to pass on the true faith of who Jesus is, who you are. May we never make a caricature or mischaricature of who you are. And may we press so deep into fellowship that we keep one another accountable for that truth. And Lord, may you grow an incredible crop of righteousness and followers in the fruit of a generation that will sing praise to you and worship to you until the very day you split the eastern sky and come to take us home. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.